Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is author Nick Stone. Nick is one of the most prolific young adult and middle grade authors writing right now. She's best known for her books, Dear Martin and Dear Justice, and her Shuri series with Marvel Comics. We talked today about how she writes so much, which authors are inspiring her, and how she pushes through her own doubt. As a reminder, the Stacks Book Club pick for March is Everybody Looking by Candice Elo, and we will discuss the book in detail on Wednesday, March 31st with Nick Stone. If you're looking for ways to support this podcast, let me give you some quick ideas. The first and easiest way is free. Subscribe, rate, and review to this show wherever you get your podcasts. Take the 30 seconds and say something nice, and please just trust that it goes a long way in helping this show. And if I'm being honest, I'm not exactly sure how, but it has something to do with an algorithm, and I don't know, but it helps. You can also shop through the links in the show notes. I earn a small commission, and you get your books, so that's always great. Use the Stacks codes when you shop with our sponsors. Grab some Stacks merch at thestackspodcast.com slash shop. And of course, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And then the last way you can help support the show is arguably the most important and best way. Join the Stacks on Patreon. You contribute $5 a month and earn perks like discounts on our merch, our monthly video book club, and shout outs on the podcast. You can join by going to patreon.com slash the stacks. And here are some of our latest members of the Stacks Pack. Alex Becker, Matt Taylor, Elena Langberg, Kelly McManus, Bria, Sue Carter-Call, Gabriella Lott, Rosamond Hayden, Victoria Ignacio, and Sarah Lutkenhaus. Thank you all so much for your support. I could not make this show without these folks and the entire Stacks Pack. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, let's talk with Nick Stone. All right, everyone. I'm so excited today. I am joined by prolific author, Nick Stone. Nick, welcome to the Stacks. Oh, thanks. It's such a pleasure to be here finally. We tried to do this before and it didn't work because of the election. Yeah, we were scheduled to record this conversation on the day after the 2020 election. Um, what were we thinking? Mm-mm. No, no, no. <laughs> I and said I'm, it. I'm in Georgia. Like I'm in Georgia. So I was like panicking and I was like, yes. no, like, we can't do this right it was now. Truly one of my biggest mistakes in life. Like I should have just known when I saw the date and we both like, we're just like, it's going to be fine. And then the night before I sent a very, you know, casual email that was like, Hey, if you don't want to record, I don't either. But if you want to, I'm available. I'm scheduled. I'm ready to go. Just you tell me. <laughs> And I was like, nah, we good. So we this good. is the makeup call months later. So excited. Um, we sort of always start, start in the same place, which is like, yes, you're an author. People are familiar with your work. Dear Martin, uh, Jackpot, Dear Justice, the new uh, Surrey book. But can you tell Shuri book? Surrey is my local sushi restaurant. How dare I? Uh, I'm t- Look, it's fine with me. The Shuri book. Can you just kind of tell us a little bit about Nick Stone, the human, like where you are, what else you might want us to know about you besides your bibliography? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you all the bad stuff. So (laughs) I am a raging workaholic. 
which is why, you know, people are like, oh my God, you're so prolific. And I'm like, no, I just distract myself from real life by writing more books. <laughs> it's not great. I am typically driven by scarcity mentality. Also not great. Um, imposter syndrome is very real. Also not great. But I do think clearly like some gold comes out of all of that dreck. Um, which, you know, if you can make your neuroses into something that fuels your work, why not? Right. That's so, okay. I'm very excited to talk about this because I am fueled by pettiness and jealousy. Like that is what makes me go. I, mm -hmm. I'm not a workaholic. I'm not, I luckily don't have that, but like if someone else has something that I want, or if someone else is doing something that I think I could do, I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to try and I'm going to do it. And I definitely have imposter syndrome because it's a weird place to create from. Um, I think sometimes, or at least to get started from, I don't know if you find that, like if it's hard sometimes to start because the impetus to do the work is not necessarily organic to the create creative part or no. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like the creative part, I have, it's such a separate part of my brain. Like I have been majorly depressed since like July of last year. Sure. And I've also written three new books. So right. it, it's, it's this very strange space where like, there's all of this weird kind of not great life stuff happening, but the creative part of my brain just kicks into high gear. And like, I definitely hear you though, on, on the idea of the impetus not being super creative <laughs> like it's just like oh this person is because i also i it's less pettiness and jealousy for me and more like wanting to achieve like my bar setter is jason reynolds right of course it is the uh, jason reynolds is the only reason that i am publishing five books this year because it's like well jason did that so i have to do it you know right. it's like anything that he does <laughs> i'm constantly chasing his shadow and while i know i will never catch him it is nice to have like that person that you're running behind, that actually has been helpful to the creative process. But yeah, like the workaholism, I just like, I don't know how to sit still, which interestingly enough, hasn't been detrimental. Right. I wonder, so I've talked to Jason, obviously on this podcast and we've done some lives together and just discussed creativity. And I love talking with him about it. Um, and, but one of the things that he has said is like his work, ethic, like his working all the time, putting out books all the time, I guess not the work ethic, but the output is something that he wishes he wasn't doing and something that he now understands is like not good for him. So I'm mm -hmm. curious, do you feel that way as well? Or do you feel like doing, cause you have published, like you said, last year, three books this year, another three, five, excuse me. Don't mind me. I honestly can't even keep up. Like it's like every week on your Instagram, you're like either. book cover reveal. And I'm like, what is she talking about? Another book cover. But I'm just, yeah. like, I mean, truly I'm looking at my outline for this conversation. And besides tell us about yourself, my next question to you is how do you navigate needing to produce so much work and being able to put out your best work? Because that's the other thing I know about you is it's not just that you want to put stuff out into the world, but you want to be the best. Like you want to keep pushing the bar. So how do you hold up, you know, what Dear Martin was your first published mm -hmm. book in 2017 and we're mm -hmm. four years later and I don't even want to guess because I know that I'm going to undersell the number of books because you probably published things I didn't even see. Yeah. Number, I just dropped number seven. And I mean, look, I will get to the point that Jason where, you know, like he said, like he, he came to realize that that level of output was detrimental to him, but you, you have to realize that and you don't right. realize that until you do that level of output. So like, <laughs> I haven't hit the wall yet, basically. Okay. And okay. I will, I absolutely am going to hit the wall. Like it's impossible to not hit the wall, but I feel like I'm definitely one of those people who's like, if you can do it, why not do it? Right. Hmm. Um, and it's interesting when I think about, I'm not going to not put my best work out there, but I also trust that what I'm putting out there is my best, if that right. makes sense. Right. So like, I don't, I'm not a person who I don't over edit. I don't overthink. Like I'm not a person who does like 92 drafts. I pour it out. I edit it. It goes to the editor. I edit it again. And then I take my hands off of it. And I, I think that it's an interesting position to be in though, because for a long time, the idea was that 
if you overproduce, you wind up, it winds up being a bad thing. Mm. But I keep reminding the people around me who keep saying that, like, I'm black, that it doesn't work like that for me. It doesn't mm. work like that for us because there are so few things still aimed at the kids that we write for, right? Right. So at this point, the overproduction is actually a good thing. It's good that I have like two Shuri books coming out this year. One came out a couple of weeks ago and the next one comes out in November because these kids are hungry for this stuff. You know, like they they want to be able to pick up the next book and pick up the next book. Because when you when you're starting readers, when you're getting people to read who haven't read before, you can start them on a book and then they finish it. If they have nothing else to pick up, they're not going to keep reading. Right. So, you know, like I said, eventually I will do less. Um, <laughs> eventually. But right now I'm like genuinely having a good time. Like I, I'm currently working on two pretty high profile projects and it's just like shit. But it's also like, this is cool. You know, like there's this weird where the imposter syndrome is like, this, what are you doing? Like, who do you even think you are? But then the other side is like, no, you got this. Like, just do your best. You'll be fine. Right. Do you, so the imposter syndrome isn't like crippling for you. It doesn't hold you back necessarily. Or do you feel like it does? It it doesn't. Like with the imposter syndrome, I call it my inner hater. <laughs> and like, I, anytime I go into a high school, I make it a point to say, make your haters your motivators. Right. And that's true of like my own inner hater too. Like, why would I give this bitch all the power? Right. Like, why would I listen to her? Like, I, I think, and honestly, therapy has helped me with this significantly because I do think that the more space we give ourselves to be, to, to have multiple iterations, mm -hmm. the more we're able to like enjoy life and, and figure out who we are and figure out how we want to move. And so having, having that inner hater, I'm like, I'm not, not going to let her win. If that right. makes sense. Yeah. No, that does make sense. I think for some people, especially maybe people who are starting out, the imposter syndrome maybe is more challenging and like gets in the way more. Um, but I think maybe like as you start to have more success, you start to believe, even if you don't necessarily 100% believe in yourself, you're like, well, I deserve to be here because I made it here sort of thing. At least that's what I tell myself. I'm like, I don't know that. I am the greatest interviewer of all time, but like I get to talk to Nick Stone today. And so that validates some part of me, you know? Absolutely. And I also think like a lot of, a lot of my, my philosophies come from like a single James Baldwin quote. A lot of my like work, my approach to work is built around that. And my approach to like self-love and my approach to like my own value it's built around a quote from um, The Fire Next Time. And it's from that introduction where he's writing this letter to his nephew. And he's basically like, yeah, like they might call you this specific word, but if that's not what you are, why would you believe them? Right. And there's something super powerful about the idea that I get to believe what, I get to choose what I believe about myself. Right. I get to choose what I believe about my output. I get to choose what I believe about my value to the world. And so why would I choose to believe something negative if I don't have to, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, it's been, and it's been a journey to get to that point, but it's one of those things where it's like, who can actually tell you that you're not the baddest bitch? <laughs> Truly, like right. who can actually tell you that? And if they do tell you that, like, why would you believe them? Like at, right. at what point do you decide that your perception of yourself is more important than other people's perception of you? When did you, how long did it take you to arrive at this? Because this feels like some Yoda level wisdom. I mean, look, I have never been a person who fit, right? So like from childhood on, never, 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 never. So I remember being in high school and eventually just deciding that like, I didn't need to fit, mm. right? I, I, I was a floater. I would, I would float to different lunch tables, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was this idea of, of, all right, I'm just going to put myself out here in this world the best way that I can. And for me, that involved like stepping into different leadership positions. And I think there's something about not fitting that's actually beneficial mm. because if you don't, like when you fit, you wind up stagnating, I think. Like when you, when you find a niche to fit into and everybody around you is doing the same thing and you have all of these all of these people who are kind of kind of setting the standard for the group that you're a part of, 
you know, like, I feel like at some point who you are begins to fade away. So there's something to me that's super powerful about not knowing that I don't fit and knowing that like, I am never going to. So if I don't fit, why would I let these standards impact my view of myself? I guess I was in my like early twenties. Okay. When it really, when it really settled in. Yeah. And then you just sort of remind yourself periodically when you're feeling like when the imposter syndrome comes on, you're like, no, no, no. Yeah. I am yeah. that bitch. <laughs> when she starts, when she starts yakking, I'd be like, who like sit down because, I, and I do think, I do think that it's a really important thing, an important exercise to pick apart where our standards for ourselves come from. Right. Mm. This is something that I had to do over and over again, as I made my way away from, from evangelical Christianity, right. Thinking about like, these standards that I am doing my best to live by and these things that I am telling myself that I need to do and I need to be a part of and like I need to be good in this area and I need to make sure that I'm doing this, 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 and this. Why? Why do I feel that way? Where does that standard come from? And starting to break that down was really helpful. Yeah. I I mean, I, I heard you, I've heard you I've listened to you on a bunch of podcasts in the last year or so because I knew that this episode eventually was going to get recorded. <laughs> and one of the things that you said on um, with when your conversation with DeRay McKesson um, was about sort of your your journey when you went on this trip to Israel with like no plan and you were sort of going to to re-embrace your Christianity and instead you sort of discovered that like maybe you were on the wrong track or maybe what you had learned was not what you wanted to be. And so, and as someone who, you know, you speak to children, you speak to young people, how do you turn? So not so much the stuff that you're writing, but when you go into those spaces and you're talking as Nick, how do Mm -hmm. you turn your lessons and what you know how can you pass that on to young people without being preachy? Because I know young people love you and they like listen to you. And how are you able to connect with them without coming, like looking like an old, you know? (laughs) I mean, honestly, it starts with being willing to listen to them. You know, like when I step into a high school, I step on a stage. I don't talk for more than 20 minutes before Mm -hmm. I open for Q and a, because Mm -hmm. there's something I, I think that like, a lot of the time as adults, we think that we're supposed to go into these spaces and teach these kids something. I go into these spaces hoping to learn something. And Mm. that I think makes all the difference, right? Like there are things, there are lessons that I've learned over the course of life. A lot of them have to do with just like going for it. Failure's fine, like things like that. So I talk about stuff like that. I talk about empowerment. I talk about, you know, imperfection is a thing that I, there's a word. I just, I make up a lot of words. (laughs) I use a lot of acronyms. I talk about wonder and I talk about elasticity and I talk about all of these, these things that are kind of inherent to being young. Mm. And when you point out to young people, the good that's already inside of them, of course, they're going to listen to you, you know, going in and not being like, Hey, this is a thing that you're doing wrong and you should be doing it this way. I don't want to hear that shit. Why would it, why would a young person want to hear it? Right. You know, and then letting them ask the questions that they want to ask, I think is one of the most powerful things you can do with a young person, giving them the space to like cry because their brand new girlfriend just broke up with them or they found out that their brand new girlfriend likes another girl. And like, I have mentees who will call me sobbing about things that I'm like, this is adorable. Like I wouldn't, (laughs) I don't say that to them because it's important to like meet them where they are. But I honestly think that part of the problem with adults, especially the older we get and the more we have to do, the more we're responsible for is we forget what it was like to be young. Mm -hmm. And when you forget what it's like to be young, like, of course, you're not going to be able to connect with anybody young. Right. What kind of questions do you get from young people that excite you or like, what can you think of any questions where you were like, yo, this sat with me for like a month. Like I couldn't get this question out of my head or anything like that. So honestly, the most fascinating ones are the ones that reveal the things that they care about. Right. Mm. So like I consistently get asked like how much money I make. (laughs) Mm. I consistently get asked like, well, how many pairs of sneakers are in my collection? (laughs) And it's interesting because those are the things that let, they let me see what society is telling these kids is important. Mm. 
And so then we go into a discussion about how, you know, honestly, being okay with who you are is an act of rebellion. Like enjoying yourself in any way is an act of rebellion. Like we're constantly bombarded with messages about not being good enough. Like, like that's what every commercial basically is. Every right. makeup commercial is you're not pretty enough. Every weight loss commercial is you're not skinny enough. Like they're the the fact that we live in a society that is consistently trying to sell us things. It's a, a society that feeds off of dissatisfaction. So like having these opportunities to step, taking a question and then stepping into a discussion of that and talking to them about like, what do you already have, right? Like, what do you have inside of you that you're not utilizing? And then that's when like the good deep questions will come up. There'll be the, the question about like, how, exactly what you asked. How did you get to a point where there's stuff that doesn't phase you? It's still mm -hmm. phasing me that like this group over here doesn't want to let me sit with them at lunch. Like, how do I, what do I do about feeling left out? What do I do about feeling like these people don't like me and it's ruining my life? Like, those are the questions that I enjoy the most, largely because I just turn it on them. And I think that answering a question with a question, especially when you're interacting with young people, is honestly one of the most valuable things you can do for them. You know, sparking critical thought in young people is genuinely my most favorite thing to do because they're so full of ideas and they're so full of magic and they have this, this innovative brain that, you know, I'm like, okay, so how do we, what do we replace the standard policing system with, right? Like I'll ask that question and like five hands will shoot up and they have mm. all of these ideas, right? So just giving them the space to think for themselves is such a powerful thing. I did not answer your question at all, but it's okay. You answer yeah. my question with a question because I have a question for you now. So look, okay. that is how Nick, the person kind of approaches these, these young people when you're doing Q and A's or when you're, you know, face to face with young folks, or I guess in these days, zoom or whatever you're doing. How about how are you approaching connecting with young folks in your writing? Because some kids maybe will read your work before you go to their school. And I'm sure some children like me will wait to meet you and see how I feel before I decide if I'm going to pick up your book, you know? So I'm curious how you sort of approach them when you're going at it through this fiction lens versus, hi, I'm in the room. You can feel my energy. You can see my vibe. Like, how do you approach it that way? Honestly, it's the same. I talk to them, you know, like there, I have yet to write a book for, you know, anybody between eight and 18 without talking to somebody in the age range of the protagonist. Like with Dear Martin, the guy on the cover, actually, I remember having a, a number of in-depth conversations with him about, you know, like, what do you do when you're stopped by police? Are you afraid of the police stopping you? Are you afraid of being profiled? And I remember him very vividly saying like, nah, I just know what's going to happen. Hmm. And even things like that, getting insight into how they think and how they feel for, for dear justice. Um, I traveled the country for months visiting juvenile detention centers because I wanted, I want the stuff on the page to be authentic. Right. So I'm talking to these kids in these facilities and I'm talking to, you know, people who go into the facilities to help them write poetry. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting to have these conversations with kids that society has basically decided they're done with. And it's in that space, in giving them my attention, I'm able to connect with them, which makes it easier for me to connect with the character and to present the characters as these fully formed human beings who are complex, who have conflicting ideas in their heads, who one minute believe one thing and the next they change their mind and they believe something different, who want one thing one minute and then the next minute they want something different. Um, giving the respect to the age range that you are writing for, I think is really the key to writing well in the middle grade and young adult space. And it's wild because if I had like a dollar for every person that I've interacted with that writes young adult novels and doesn't like teenagers, <laughs> I'm like, the fuck? Like, I don't, how, how is this a thing that you do? I just like, I, it doesn't, it's a thing that just boggles my mind. Like mm. you're writing and these are people who are writing for themselves. They're not actually writing for young people. They're writing for themselves and hoping that young people are going to be into what they're into now as adults. And it typically doesn't work. Okay. So you just said, you know, you're writing for young people. Can you be more specific? Who, who are you writing for 
aside from people between the ages of eight and 18, like, or within that group, is there, are there specific children or young folks that you're thinking of? Does that change with every book? Like, what does that look like? It definitely changes with every book. Um, so, you know, Dear Martin, interestingly enough, Dear Martin, I just wrote for my sons. My sons are four and eight, but Dear Martin was sparked by the death of Jordan Davis in Jacksonville in 2012. And my older son at that point was five months old. And I just, it, it shook me, right? Like this idea that this, this black boy who came out of my body, like having babies is a whole ordeal. Like I grew this person. And then I shoved him out of a very small opening without drugs. <laughs> without and drugs. And when she just, ma'am, wow. ma'am. I was like, nah, I got this. I got this. And I just screamed my head off Good for, you. for the whole time. But once it's out, you're like, okay, that was a lot of work. I want you to stay alive, right? For <laughs> sure. Like, you want, you want your babies to stay alive. So hearing about this kid in Florida who lost his life because a white man didn't like the music he was listening to, like, I was like, what? So it's with that particular book, I wanted to create something that I could hand to my son when he was older. Hmm. Um, and then a lot of people started to read it. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, okay. So this is what is happening now. With Odd One Out, I was, honestly, Odd One Out is the one book that I did write for my own. It's like a love letter to my own closeted teenage self. Um, and then from there, you know, Jackpot is for the poor kids who live in rich neighborhoods. Dear Justice is, it's, I, I dedicated it to, um, a couple of boys that I mentored when they were in high school, they both graduated now, but they were the impetus for Dear Justice because they asked me to write that book. So I wrote that book for them. And of course, for all of the boys that I was, I was talking to in these, in these detention centers. So it really does. It changes with each book. And it's, that actually is what makes it fun for me, you know, knowing that I have an opportunity to just like, I'm going to write this one for you and I'm going to write that one for you and I'm going to write this one for you. And I know that none of you have actually had anybody write anything for you before. Um, I'm actually very excited about, I have a book coming out in the fall called Fast Pitch and it's a black girl softball book because I was a black girl softball player. And at the time I was the only black girl mm -hmm. softball player on my team, but knowing that there are other black girl softball players out there. So like fast pitch is a book for the black girl softball players, right? Like right. anybody else can read it. Cool. I hope you enjoy it. But like, this is for, for my black girl softball players. So what, what do you, what happens when for you as the creator, because I'm obsessed with audience. I'm obsessed. I, I mm -hmm. went to theater school. I was obsessed with audience. Then I was a dancer. Like I've always, even with this podcast, I'm obsessed with who's listening and what they think about the work. Not that I make the work, you know, for anyone else, but you know, I'm aware that no matter who is in my mind consuming my work, that there are people who are outside of my intended audience. And so mm -hmm. I am so curious how you respond to the people that you are not intending to read your book. Not that they can't read it, but not the people that you have in mind, not the people, you know, and I'm sure you get feedback, both very positive and very negative from people who are not your intended audience. So how do you deal with that? You know, interestingly enough, I haven't gotten a ton of negative feedback from people who are not a part of the intended audience. Like I can count on one hand, the number of negative emails I've gotten about books that I've written. But and, like, what about like, your books I, being banned? I mean, I consider that to be like negative yeah, feedback for true. people you don't write, like not necessarily a specific email, that's like, true. Hey, Nick, fuck you. But like the general, <laughs> your book's not allowed in our County period. Like have a yeah. nice life. You know what? I will say that, that the pressure and the, the, backlash that that superintendent faced she retired good at the end of last year and i'm Bye. like yes holler yeah out of out. there i mean look i i honestly i don't really care tracy okay. like it's one of those things where if you are a part of my intended audience your opinion is the one that i care about if you are not a part of my intended audience and you read it and love it fantastic you read it and you learn something from it wonderful you read it and it expands your worldview love it you read it and you hate it i don't care <laughs> i don't care at all but I, I think that like i'm also a firm believer that you know really to quote john green and i don't even know if he's the originator of the quote but like he's the person who kind of instilled this into me books belong to their readers right mm -hmm. once i'm done writing a book it's not mine anymore once it like goes out into the world it belongs to whoever picks it up from the library, whoever buys it at the store, like I've done my part. So 
if you if you read it and you hate it and you want to burn it, cool. Ain't got nothing to do with me. That's your eighteen dollars right. that's gone, not right. mine. Right. I still I still got my royalty chunk <laughs> from that thing that you bought, right? So there's this, right. there is there's a certain level of detachment that I feel from the work once I finish it because mm-hmm. at that point it's like okay, I did what I was supposed to do. I can move on now. Right. And what about adults? What do you think about adults? Uh, I don't like us very much, if okay. you want the truth. Sure. I think that I think that we we could do a better job of being authentic. Look, like I was I'm house I'm house shopping right now, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm 35 and I'm about to purchase my first home. Congratulations. Thank you. This shit is terrifying. So scary. And like it is. And and the idea of like, I, like I see people like, yeah, I got this. And I'm like, you, you don't, you're, you're secretly freaking out inside. And that is totally okay. I think mm-hmm. we put this pressure on ourselves to be adults. And I put that in quote, be yeah. adults, but like really adults are just people. Adults are just toddlers who can legally drink alcohol and have to pay bills. Right. Truly right. is how I think about it. Right. And I think that the more we give ourselves the space to not be so crotchety, man, what a better world it would be. <laughs> so I also true. think, I will also say that I think that when I interact with adults in spaces where I'm also talking to children, so like administrators in high schools and okay. teachers, I find that a lot of adults are trying to stifle kids and keep them from doing things that they were doing when they were young, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that comes from shame. And I think that like we could all stand to dig in a little bit and consider why we don't want our children doing literally the same shit that we were doing when we were young, right? right? Like I did some crazy shit when I was young. Thank God it didn't kill me. Right. But I'm also not gonna tell my kids like, don't do that. It's really, really bad because that would make me a hypocrite and I don't like hypocrisy. So like, I will tell you my experience with this thing that you think that you should do. And I'm gonna hope you're gonna make a good decision based on my experience. But I do think that there's something to be said for adults relating to young people as actual human beings and not as these little robots that we get to program. Like right. they are they are stories to be read, not books to be written. Hmm. That's so good. Um, I, I literally <laughs> just looked at the time and I'm like, oh, my God, we're already like really cruising. And I have a million questions to ask you and I haven't gotten to any of them. So I'm going to try to finish this quickly because I am I, I just have so much I want to talk to you about. I, one of the things that I just so dear Martin, dear Justice, both of those books have a lot to do with, um, you know, police violence, profiling, obviously racism against black children, specifically black boys and young I guess not. They're boys. They're not men. Um, Thank you. Yes. I'm curious. I'm sure you could go on for hours and hours about police violence and and racism and all this stuff. But I want to know specifically the ways that your understanding of racism and police violence and and all of those things, um, incarceration, has changed since this past summer. Since you've seen the response of of white people to this quote unquote racial reckoning, how your understanding of the work that you've created in relationship to this newer moment of black lives. And I guess what I'm really asking you is how white people's response to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's and others has influenced or or changed the way that you understand race and racism. It hasn't at all. Like congratulations, white people. I'm glad you're waking up, but I haven't been sleeping for years. Right. Sure. I think, and it's interesting with the work that I do in that space, the the dear Martins, the dear justices, the clean getaways, right? Like clean getaway is like dear Martin light. So it's for like third through fifth graders still dealing with racism, still dealing with civil rights history. It's, it's dear Martin light. Like I said, those are the books that I'm like, those are the books that I feel responsible for writing. Like this is, this is the contribution that I have that I can make to other people's understanding of race and racism, especially young people's understanding of race and racism, because I do feel like as a person who does study this stuff and who is deeply interested in how things got to be the way that they are, anything that I learn. I think it's important for me to like put it back out in the world in some way. Mm -hmm. There will be someone, even if there's only one person 
who stumbles upon it and learns something or thinks a different way because of it, great. But when it comes to, like, I'm, I'm doing that work, though, more for, like, the kids that are like my kids, for the Black kids. As, and, and as much as I think it's great when white kids are able to connect and they start saying things in a different way, honestly, it's just kind of like a fringe benefit because mm. really what I care most about is Black people realizing that there is nothing wrong with us, right. you know? As a matter of fact, there is more right with us than there is with, with like, a lot of the way, like, it, it has to do with, like, the, our perception of ourselves, I think, is a lot of the problem, and helping people to recognize that that perception of ourselves doesn't actually come from us. Like, that's that's the job that I'm trying to do. Right. So when white people come to the work, when white people decide that they're waking up, I'm like, cool, are you going to stay awake? Right. Because the truth is, they don't have to, right? Like, I, I've been watching... Um, these companies that say they're making all these changes. I just watch right. and I'm like, let's see if you really go, including some of the companies I'm involved with. I'm like, right. hmm, what are you doing? Have you, have you changed any leadership positions? Have you added any people of color to your marketing department? Right. Have you added any, are there black interns now? Like, do you have, what, what are you actually doing? Like you talked a good game right. last year, right. but cool. And it's, it's one of those things where, I do think that we're we're getting to a point now where we don't really need y'all to, to wake up. We just going to do it ourselves. Right. I think about all of the successful black businesses. I think about all of the people who have decided that like, wait a minute, no, I'm going to acquire resources and I am going to build something for my people that, mm -hmm. that will, where we can thrive. Um, and I personally think it's great, yeah. you know? Yeah, I do too. The reason I asked that question is also just because I know that with the work that you do, like we talked about traveling into schools and seeing a lot of different kids from a lot of different places. Like I know you don't just talk to kids in Atlanta. I know you don't mm -hmm. just talk to kids in Brooklyn. I know that you're talking to kids in rural North Dakota. I know that you're talking to kids in Oklahoma. I know the work that young adult authors and middle grade authors are doing. And so the reason that I was curious about how your perception has changed is because as someone like you who studies race and racism and the structures that are in place, I did have my thinking around race changed because I realized how much worse off we were than I thought. I kind of thought mm -hmm. more white people like knew about Black Lives Matter. And like, I kind like, not that I knew that there was still racism, but I was sort of shocked that like people that were my friends that I was like, wait, what's the question? Like, so I, yeah. I was wondering if you kind of had a moment at all like that where you were like, I knew y'all were bad at this, but I kind of thought you guys were like, I thought maybe some of you were doing the work a little bit in way. Like I really had a moment of like, oh shit. And that includes my white mom. Like mm -hmm. I had to have conversations with her where I was like, you know, that's like, you can't say that mom. And she was like, <laughs> no, I didn't know that. And I was like, I love you. And I know that you like love black people, but like, that's a no, that's a big no. Like we're going to have to fight now, you know? And so I just wonder, because I know that you interact with so many different kinds of people that most Americans are not interacting with that many different kinds of people from different socioeconomic, racial, sexual orientation, ability. I know that you're interacting in different spaces. So that's where the question came from. I'm not surprised that not a lot has changed, but I just was curious yeah. based on your, I mean, like, you know. I think honestly, because of all of that interaction, my expectations are We're so low. So low. <laughs> <laughs> like, when, and so like when I have, like I have um, white, passing cousins like mm. not white presenting but like they basically live yeah. as white people and I, I remember getting um getting a message from one of my cousins and it shook it shook her up like mm. what was going on last year shook her up and I was glad for it mm. you know but I also wasn't surprised right you, like I, it takes at this point it takes a lot <laughs> to surprise me sure. because of some of the stuff that I've seen I will never forget, Tracy. I was in Hastings, Minnesota at this high school. It was like 800 students in the auditorium. Maybe 1% were kids of color. It was like eight, it was like eight brown kids in the room. Great. And I remember going into a classroom, not a lick of any color other than white in this classroom, and having a young lady, she was probably in ninth grade, ninth or 10th grade. She raised her hand. And I was like, what's up, babe? She's like, 
I just, if I want to go out into the middle of the street and shout the N-word, I just feel like I should be able to do that because I have free speech. And I was like, yeah, cool, go for it. Just remember and understand that ain't nobody going to like you. Like, right. I think that it, it's there's this disconnect between this idea of their rights, right? Like, these are my rights. Mm -hmm. I can I can tote this gun. I can say whatever the fuck I want to say. Yeah, you can, but there are social consequences. Right. And we're seeing that happen more and more online where you have people just outraged over quote unquote cancel culture. And I'm like, look, if you say messed up things, the public can absolutely decide they don't want to rock with you no more. Right. That has nothing to do. Nobody's restricting your speech. Right. Nobody's telling you that you can't have the viewpoint that you have. You just got to recognize that like people not vibing with that anymore. Right. 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 And it, the, the people that I meet, I, I met a high schooler, a high school senior at a really bougie private school here in Atlanta. And like, I'm talking to them about Dear Martin and this girl raises her hand and she's like, but what about the illegitimacy rate? I was like, the what? She was like, you know, the illegitimacy rate in the black community. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, the number of black people, of black kids who grow up without fathers, and I looked at her and I said, honey, what makes a person, a human being illegitimate? And she zipped it because it's like they have these words, these ideas that they toss around like they're mm. there's and because I encounter that so much. Girl, bye. Right. Ugh, so, OK, we're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We have this segment called Ask the Stacks. Someone has written in, they want a book recommendation. So I'm going to read to you what they're looking for. And then you're going to come up with at least one recommendation. I will give them three because I had a little time to prep um, and you've had a none. So this comes from Alexandra <laughs> and they say, do you have any recommendations for books that explore biracial identity, preferably non-white biracial identity? or elements of othering between cultures and identities. I love a lot of YA books, 
um, for this, like to all the boys I've loved before, Love Boat Taipei and The Astonishing Color of After, but I am looking to read more in adult fiction and I don't know much. Okay. Yes. I'll go first if you want to think for a second and then. No, I'm good. Oh, because you... I think you're going to say some of the ones I, okay, I got to go get first. them before you go first. You go first. You go so first. So I definitely, The Vanishing Half. Okay. Okay. Obviously, I think is one that everyone should read. Um, and then um, The Girl Who Fell from the Sky. I don't know that. I cannot remember here. Let me look up who the author is. Heidi Duro is okay. the name of the author. Those are the two that I recommend for, you know, kind of exploring biracial identity for adults in the okay. adult realm. That's so good. Those Neither of those were on my list. So I feel really ha! good that you came up with things I don't have. So my first one is Caucasia by Danzi Senna. That is black and white racial identity, but um, biracial identity, but it's really good. So just read it. Um, then one that's that just came out as of the recording of this episode is called What's Mine and Yours by Naima Coaster. And it's about um, a, it's actually not one person with biracial identity, but it's about two different families. One is white and Colombian, and then one is black. So it's sort of about the relationship between these families and these people. And then the last one is also about um, the racial, the the cultural dynamics and it's called your house will pay by Steph Cha. And it's um, sort of a fictionalization of the Latasha Harlings case in, in LA in the LA riots, but it's all fictionalized and it's about a Korean family and a black family. So those would be my recommendations. And Alexandra, if you read any of our five books, you must tell us how we did and if you loved them. Yes. Okay. Now we get to talk about Nick's favorite and maybe not so favorite books. And we'll start where we always start. Two books you love, one book you hate. Um, Two books I love. Let's see. So I am a Brit Bennett stan. Okay. So I just, I just recommended The Vanishing Half. But honestly, my favorite book that she's released is the other one, is The Mothers. So good. Good Lord, that damn book. Yeah. Um, and then Nafisa Thompson Spire's her heads of the colored people. So good. Huh. Can I do one more? Sure. They're like, Go ahead. These are like my, these are my holy, my holy trinity. And the third is Friday Black by Nana Ugh. Kwame Ajebrinya. So two of those are short story, adult short story collections and the mother's is a novel, but like they are just so rich and textured and the prose is immaculate. And I just like, oh, to be able to write like that is, <laughs> is how I feel when I read those books. Oh my gosh, a book so that cool. I hate. Um, I hate Lord of the Flies. Okay. With a deep and burning passion. Um, when I was a, when I was younger, I used to call that book. These little white boys need their asses whooped. <laughs> Not piggy, my, no. <laughs> look. Uh uh. Can you write like a fanfic? non-fanfic of lord of the flies i would love like a modern retelling that was better because i feel like you know there's what? so much potential there right yeah look there is one um libba bray did one called beauty queens okay and it is fantastic okay, like it's just like it. lord of the flies retelling about a group of beauty queens who get stranded on an island and it's just like huh, it's, it's fantastic fantastic right. okay okay what's the last really great book you've read Ooh, let's see. The last really great book I read doesn't come out until <laughs> September. Well, can you tell but, us what it is? So we can get on team pre-order. Ah, uh, I mean, the, the only problem is like it hasn't announced. And so oh. like, I want to like, okay, let me, let me tell, let me tell the last great book I read that has announced George Matthew Johnson's next memoir, which is called, hold on. Yes, we are not broken. Okay. Yes, and amen. That okay. book is fantastic. So, like, their first book was All Boys Aren't Blue. Right. And it was great. Um, and We Are Not Broken is just this beautiful exploration of family dynamics mm. and interrelationship between boys and this grandmother figure. And it is just, yeah, you'll cry a lot. Just be ready for that. Okay. And what are you reading right now? Right now, I am rereading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibram Kendi, and I am also reading a book called Ace of Spades 
It's by, it comes out in June. It's by an author named Farida. I'm going to butcher her last name, but in my Nigerian spouse is going to be so <laughs> upset with me for butchering this name because I should be able to pronounce it, but it's Farida Abike Iyimide, okay. I think. Good. But yes, it's good. Okay. And do you, do you often read multiple books at once or are you more of a one book yeah. pony? No, I definitely read multiple books at once, which is, I don't actually recommend that, but like <laughs> it, it, you know, press for time. Life happens. What about yes. how much are you reading? Cause you're writing all the time. It sounds like, so you can mm -hmm. read things and be writing and those, those that doesn't affect you or get in your way. Yeah. As long as I'm reading something different from what I'm writing, okay. it's fine. And I do, I do a lot of audio booking. I'm a huge fan of a solid audiobook. Yeah. It's what are some of like, your favorite audiobooks or recently been some of your faves? Honestly, the one we're gonna the book we're gonna talk about today is a it's I love that audiobook. It's short. It's like yes. three hours long. Yes. Um yeah, and that's it's everybody, everybody looking. looking. Yeah. <laughs> yes. By Candace Elo. Um, another audiobook, Neil Schusterman. Okay, so I am a massive Neil Schusterman fan. So Neil Schusterman is for those who are unfamiliar, he is a pretty much exclusively young adult writer. Like mm -hmm. I can't think of a whole lot that he's written that's not young adult, but he likes, he does this thing where he will cloak social issues in sci-fi fantasy stories and mm. speculative fiction. And he has a series called The Ark of a Scythe. So the three books are Scythe, oh boy. The second one is called Thunderhead, and the third one is called The Toll. And those audiobooks are so good. Okay. They're so good. Okay. And do you reread a lot? No, I no. don't. If I reread it, it means that, like, it was bomb. Okay. So books that I have reread, Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds. I cannot tell you how many times I've read that okay. book. There's a few. There are a few that I have reread and would read again and again and again and again. Um, some of Jacqueline Woodson's books, another Brooklyn, that's a rereader. So good. That's a rereader. Oh that's my definitely gosh. a rereader. That is such a good book. Oh. Yes. And Jessamine Ward, she's also like, right. you reread those. You definitely go reread Jessamine. She's, I mean, what can you say about Jessamine Ward? Not a lot. I met her and I like almost peed on myself. Did you? Like, she <laughs> followed me on Instagram and I peed myself. Like, so oh, I can yeah. only imagine. Oh, yeah. And I, I like walk up to her. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm such a stan. And she's like, oh, hey, Nick. And I was like, what is happening? Like, she's like, yeah, I follow you on, I follow you on Twitter. And I was like, I, I, um, hi. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's truly like paralyzing when people that you admire or think the world of acknowledge you in any way. It's like, oh, you yes. liked my photo. Thank you. Thank you You're for like, seeing oh. me. <laughs> I feel so good about myself. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. What makes you pick up a book? I don't know. Sometimes it's a title. Okay. Um, some, a title can make me interested in a book. A cover. I am definitely a, ooh, I like that cover. Let me see what this is about. Same. But I will also say I'm not a person who reads flap copy. I will read the first five pages. Okay. And if you if you grab me by page five, I'll, I'll read the book. But yeah. like the minute you lose me, I'm putting it down. Like I'm not a person who's going to push my way through anything. Okay. So you either got me by page five or I'm probably not going to finish. Okay. No shade. Just, <laughs> just, not my, just not my cup of tea. You know? Right, right. Do you set any reading goals or goals around your reading? I used to, but now I have too much other stuff to do. Mm -hmm. And so I would just be like devastated about not meeting the goal. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, back in like 2015, 2016, I was reading like a hundred books a year, but now there is no way right. in any, yeah, nah. But you weren't writing five books a year when you were reading a hundred. You have like, Valid. So, we, we need you to read less and write more so we have things to read. No offense, but See? it's just- Right, and now I'm like, I now I want to flip it. I'm like, let me write less and read more so that I have things to read. That's true. You should just do whatever feels nice for you. You've already given so much, you know? Like, <laughs> I, I'm all for taking the pressure off authors. Like, you guys do so much. You don't need any more pressure from us. How do you organize your books or do you? Um, by author, typically. Uh, so my favorite shell, I have two bookcases in my office that have my favorites on them. And I'm looking at them right now so I can tell you who they are. So Jason Reynolds takes up like half of the top <laughs> shelf of the first bookcase <laughs> because he has published so much amazing work. And what's your and favorite Jason Reynolds book? 
The Boy in the Black Suit. Okay. It's his second novel, and it's the one that like the fewest people know about. But That's the one so he said was his beautiful. favorite. Oh my god, I love that book so much. It's yeah the best I just uh, and he knows it. that's my favorite I just oh, bought it so I never good. read it so I, I have so, to it's so like sweet and you get this beautiful love story and you're also seeing this ba- this black boy grapple with the concept of death like it's mm. just it's Jason but it's like Jason before Jason was Jason right <laughs> I even have Jason books that were published like years ago like I have like three books that Jason published that nobody even knows about Wow. and they cost me a lot of money which lets <laughs> let you know how much I admire that man. So like, yeah, there's Jason's <laughs> up there. Angie Thomas is up there. Becky Albertalli, Tiffany D. Jackson, Ashley Woodfolk, Danielle Clayton, Elizabeth Acevedo, and Lamar Giles, and Brendan Kiley. Those are the, those are the people on my like favorite shelf. Favorite. Okay. Um, yeah. I have, you, I don't even remember what your question was. Um, how you organize your books. Oh yes. By author. By author. Um, okay. And then what about the last really good book that someone recommended you to read, recommended to you? Oh, that's a really good question. Oh, there's a book called Fiebre Fiebre Tropical. Yes. Oh my Lord. That book is fantastic. And Daniel Handler or Lemony Snicket is the person who recommended that book to me. And it is this beautiful, like, story about like discovering one's queer this this the character like is discovering their queer identity and there's this there, it's like written in spanglish and mm. it is just riveting like, like i love reading books that play with language mm-hmm. because there's so much there's so their languages are just beautiful and so right. i really really enjoyed that book what's the last book that you purchased um probably one of my own because I had a book come out a couple weeks ago. Okay. So I think Shuri the Vanish is probably the last book I purchased. I'm like sitting here looking through, <laughs> looking through what's here. Yeah, I think, no, yes, that's the last book I purchased. But I purchased one before that called One of the Good Ones. Mm-hmm. It's by, um, it's a pair of sisters. Um, oh, the women who wrote. Mike, yes, Mike ha- and Maritza. Dear Lee. Haiti. The women who wrote yes, Dear Haiti. Okay. Dear Haiti, Love Elaine. Yeah. So that's that's the last book I purchased before purchasing. I make it a point to go purchase my own books on the day that they come out just mm. to like remind myself that all of this is real. Yeah. That's so special. It is. Is it crazy when you see your book in the store? Girl. <laughs> so I am a Target hit. Like Target <laughs> is my jam. Okay. And... <laughs> I, my, my family, we went to Maui for Thanksgiving last year because the world was shit. And I was like, let's just go on vacation somewhere right. where we have to test to get in. So we go to Maui and we go to Target in Maui and they had four of my books on the shelf. And I like, uh, I like melted on the floor. Yeah. That's yeah. So I bought my book from Walmart for the first time <laughs> toward the end of last year. It's very surreal. Yeah. It's very surreal. I oh, what a cool thing. Okay. <laughs> What's the last book that made you laugh? Probably Wings of Ebony okay. by JL. Okay. There's some there's some little humorous tidbits in there. Okay. Last book that made you cry. You know, I don't typically cry when reading. So okay. it takes it takes a lot to get okay. me to cry. But the one that I recommended from George. Yeah. Matthew Johnson. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. That one got me. That one got me pretty good. Okay. The last book that made you angry. Oh, there's a book called When You Look Like Us. Okay. The author's name is Pam Harris. And I, yeah. But I will tell you, an author that consistently makes me angry with their books is Tiffany D. Jackson. Mm-hmm. I'll be wanting to fight her. I'll be wanting <laughs> to fight Tracy. I read my first of her books last year. I read Monday's Not Coming. And I was like, girl, I don't know about this. Just appalling. Like, like and she does it with every so she has she has a book coming out in the fall that hasn't announced yet. Okay. And um I I'm just angry. Like I t- I angry text her when I'm reading her books because I'm just like, bitch, like how dare you? How dare you? But that's exactly so right. So that's good. that's exactly it's like a 
how dare she write this book? And like the thing that's also frustrating, at least for me, when I read Monday's Not Coming, is like I knew exactly where we were going. Like it wasn't like she tricked me and I was like, oh, you tricked me. It was like, we're doing exactly what you said that we're going to do. And still I am mad at you because I felt like you were good. Yeah, it's like I thought you were lying when you said we were doing this. Like, why are we still here? She's great. Okay. What about a book, the last book where you felt like you learned a lot? The Black Friend by Frederick T. Joseph. Okay. And it's interesting because it's not necessarily, like, it's learning different perspectives, mm-hmm. right? So it's this, it's stuff that I'm constantly talking about, mm-hmm. but hearing it from these different angles was, was pretty dope. Yeah. What about a book that you are proud to have read? Ooh. Mm. Stamped from the beginning. <laughs> that book is a dude, like the not the Jason Reynolds version, the Dr. Big, Kendi the big version. boy, the big boy. Ooh, and look, I will admit, I I audiobooked it, but like, that's a that's a see, that's I a couldn't book audio right that. There. I couldn't audio that because I struggle with reading comprehension when I'm listening and I lose mm-hmm. focus. So I have yeah. if something's really dense, I have to read it with my eyes because I have to have my full attention. Yeah, I I can like read memoir audio because I feel like I kind of know where we're going. But if it's something like, like really dense like that, I had to go all in, like locked in the bathroom, Wi-Fi off when I was reading stamp with your pencil, like you have to like underline things. You know, another book for me in this category is Beloved uh, by Toni Morrison, like Toni Morrison's book. But that's a really hard book. Like it is a hard book. We did it on this show with Damaris Hill and... Uh, if you go back and listen to the episode, I'm I'm coming to the episode. And I'm like, I have no fucking clue. And she breaks it down. Man. It's still one of my most favorite episodes because I literally enter the conversation with like, I don't know, please help me. I and she breaks. She just starts and she just goes. And now I'm like, I need to reread it because I can understand it's like, like I think you have to read that book like a hundred times to get it. Yeah, it's yeah. so like, complex. I'm thankful. I read it. I read it while um, I read a lot of a lot of a lot of Toni Morrison's books while I was an undergrad at Spelman Mm. and like being surrounded by other black women makes it a little easier to understand but like look Toni be like oh this paragraph we're gonna make it three pages long yeah good luck have fun (sighs) okay this is you're the perfect person to ask this question of which is if you were a teacher in high school what is the book that you would assign your students um there's a book called the 57 bus the author I know that one. Later. Yes, man, that takes like, place. If I, yeah, Oakland, it's like if I have to, exactly, it does, and and it's nonfiction. And mm-hmm. if I had to, like, if I was a teacher and I had to assign one book, it would be that book. Yeah. If I had more than one, um, I would assign The Bells by Danielle Clayton. Okay. That's um, it's a book that deals with like beauty culture and norms and like, it it deals with it in a very cool way. And I would also assign, I would assign Sunny from Jason Reynolds track series okay. because it's such a, it's such a, it, it's written in this kind of stream of conscience, stream of consciousness, semi-epistolary type thing. And just the way that it's written makes mm. it a really, I think it would be a really cool book to teach okay. on like the art of writing. Okay. And then. If you could have one person write the book of your life, that's not you, can't be you, who would you want? I would want Tiffany Jackson to do it. Okay. She to piss would, us like, off. make it spicy. Yeah. <laughs> she would like, she'd be like, and then at the end we find out Nick was a murderer. Yeah. Like there would be some really cool twist that she would plop in there. If you turn out to be yeah. like a serial killer or something, people are going to go back to this podcast and be like, she just casually mentioned it. She was leaving she clues totally for us all along. Told us that, like she totally has murderous <laughs> tendencies. I really don't. I'm a lover, not a killer. Good. Please. Just I'm glad we're doing this remotely just in case. Uh, okay, last yeah. question for you <laughs> before we, you know, go to our book club conversation. I steal this one from the book from the New York Times by the book. You're only the second person on the history of the podcast to answer it this way. So if you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. That book, I think it takes 
Baldwin's The Fire Next Time kind of gives it a bit of an update and is just as relevant today as it was. Honestly, it's probably more relevant today than it was when it came out Mm -hmm. years ago. I think every sitting leader in the world should be required to read that book. It's short. You got no excuses for not getting through it. And there's a lot to be learned, a lot to be gleaned. That's such a good book. All Mm -hmm. right, everyone, this is Nick Stone. Nick will be back with us at the end of the month to discuss Everybody Looking by Candace Elo. And um, there will be spoilers on a conversation. So please read it. It's super short. You can audio book it. It's a book. It's a Mm -hmm. young adult book in verse. So I promise you, Mm -hmm. if you get the physical copy, it looks big. It's not nearly as long as you think. And Nick has seven books in the world. I, uh, and, and you should get all of her books. And if you are like, I already have all of them. Don't worry. Apparently she has five more coming out this year. So (laughs) just hold tight, just hang on, put it, put the money in savings, let it accrue some interest or whatever financially plan. And then, uh, go get the rest of the books you have. I mean, we didn't even talk. Well, I'll save it for next week, but we didn't even talk about, um, the, the blackout book, which we, I feel like we have to talk about. We're going to have to talk about that. Absolutely. So that's a, that's a teaser. Come back the last week of the month to discuss, uh, blackout and everybody looking Nick, thank you so much for being here. Look, thanks for having me and letting me just blab for an hour. Amazing. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you so much to Nick Stone for being our guest. Also, a special thank you to Pete Forrester and Kathleen Dunn for making this episode possible. Nick will be back on March 31st to discuss Everybody Looking by Candice Elo for the Stacks Book Club. Please make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer, and our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. Our theme music is from Tagiragis, and The Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.